Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Friday this week at 10.30 a.m. on December 8th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we are joined by Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Hello. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. And we're pleased to welcome back from Injured Reserve, Margot Sanger-Katz of The New York Times. Margot is recovering from a broken collarbone, but thankfully, she can still talk. I sure can. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> so it is another crazy busy news week. Um, after all these weeks of Congress not doing anything about the expiration of the Children's Health Insurance Program, yesterday they did something about the Children's Health Insurance Program, although not very much. So this temporary funding is going to be the start of months of Band-Aids to keep the program temporarily afloat, or will they actually do something to officially renew a program that Republicans and Democrats both say they support? It's been watching Chip, Alice. Yes, uh, I've been up on the Hill all week, and I have to say there is not a ton of discussion on Chip, and what was passed yesterday didn't really include any new money at all. It just made it easier for states who are on the brink of running out of money to tap the money that the federal government still has squirreled away. And so we're still tipping up to to this um, very bad point where states could run out of funding. Some states have already sent out notices or preliminary notices, and several states would run out definitely by the end of January, if not sooner. And some of the big natural disasters in the country are actually making this worse, making that money dwindle even faster. And what, why, you know, we keep saying everybody says they support CHIP and yet they're not doing anything to, to you know, to stop this other than, than now we have 10 days of uh, you can you can use the leftover money from the federal government that other states haven't used. It, it's still Orrin Hatch actually said last week, he's the chairman of the Finance Committee and, and one of you know, the uh, the original sponsors of the CHIP program said, well, we don't have any, you know, we the problem with CHIP is that we can't find the money to pay for it. And yet they just passed a tax bill that would add. $1.4 trillion to the deficit. It just continues to sort of make me scratch my head. So I, I thought his remarks were really interesting, and they were widely misreported. And yeah. in, in that same speech, he referred to the government wasting a lot of money on people who won't lift a finger to help themselves. And because it was part of his comments on CHIP, people are like, are you saying children who need health care aren't lifting a finger to help themselves? But he was referring to other social safety net programs. But it so... But he did say the part about right. the, the problem with CHIP is that they can't find the money. Yes. And the reason they can't find the money is that the government is spending too much money to help other people. <laughs> um, and the in his view, the problem is not the tax bill, which it will cost the government upwards of, of a trillion dollars, if not more, um, but these other sort of welfare programs that, that he thinks are wasteful. 
And that's consistent. The House did pass a CHIP bill, and they did make cuts to other health care programs to try to offset the additional cost of, of covering these kids. So, you know, I think it's Hatch's comments are, are reasonably consistent with what Republicans in the House would like to do, too. I mean, the fight about CHIP is not, do we want to extend the program? It's about, do we have to offset increased spending on the program with some other change? And where should those changes come from? And, you know, as in so many things, you know, part of the difficulty is there needs to be some degree of bipartisan compromise on those offsets because a chip renewal bill is going to need 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster. That means if you're, the Democrats need to vote for it, they don't want to vote for what the House passed. And and now we have the, the and we'll talk about the tax bill in a second, but now we have the, the spending bill that, that goes to what, December 22nd? Is that right. <laughs> Merry Christmas, guys? I, I do think Monica will be over, I would like to point out. <laughs> yes. I, I do think there's a little bit of a cautionary tale, like a broader thing I was thinking about with regard to this chip funding, which is I think there's a view by many people in Congress that if you do cliff based legislating, that some of these problems will just take care of themselves. We saw this discussion with the um, Graham Cassidy. Uh, Obamacare replacement bill, those block grants that would have mm-hmm. replaced a lot of Obamacare programs were supposed to expire after 10 years. And the and the author said, oh, don't worry about that. It'll just get renewed. Of course, no one wants all this money to go away. There's a similar argument that's been made about the tax bill. So in order to comply with the bird rule and to get the deficit uh, Within a certain limit, there are provisions in that bill that are set to expire at various points, mostly at the end of the budget window. And the authors again say, oh, well, you know, we're not intending for those to be temporary. We'll fix that later. I do think, you know, CHIP is a good example of a program. It's actually off budget, so you don't actually have to find that much money. Uh, it's very popular. It has broad bipartisan support. Every governor in the country wants it. Uh, it affects children who are an extremely sympathetic demographic. They can't solve this problem. I think it should give us some pause about the degree to which Congress is going to be able to resolve other kinds of funding cliffs in the future. We should point out that there's two sort of definitions of cliff-based. One of them is programs that end and that Congress has to actively renew. And in theory, most things in Congress are cliff-based. Funding, does, you know, there are authorizations for a set period of time. There's also the, the cliff-based that people are talking about in the Affordable Care Act and in some other, and Medicaid, other programs where if you earn some amount, you get it, and if you earn the next dollar, you don't, which is the uh, another type of funding cliff. But I think in your case, you're talking about things that Congress could theoretically, that Congress, that should not be a problem for a functional Congress to renew because everybody supports it, but turn out to be. Right. Well, you see some of that with the tax stuff, too, in the ACA. It's not a cliff, but you see kind of this continual pushing things slightly off and then it comes back um, and there's not a bipartisan or there's not even agreement over what to do with it. You see that with like Cadillac tax and the the health insurance tax where they just kind of push it down the road and then suddenly they're stuck with it again and they can't seem to forge their way through. Yeah, But, you know, with the doc fix, which was this longstanding sort of problematic Mm -hmm. formula in Medicare, every year or every six months or however often it had to happen, Congress actually did come together and pass some kind of fix and they did find the money. There was a similar problem. Although there were a couple of times where those those big cuts in the doc fix for God knows anybody that doesn't remember was this odd uh, formula that Congress created in the 1997 Balanced Budget Act that was supposed to cut payments for physicians and Medicare if spending went too high. And what happened is they kept rolling it down 
down the, the, the road some more. And so the cuts was like a snowball. The cuts kept getting bigger. So, you know, for a while, they I think one year they let them take effect. It was like a 5% cut. But by the time they had to sort of do it every six months, it was like a 20% cut. 25%, they were, yeah. Yeah, they were enormous cuts that were coming. But they a couple of times, they actually missed the deadline. And, and CMS had to go, you know, start sending out letters and, and start holding payments. they always did it. And there was something <clears throat> similar with the alternative minimum tax where there was a patch that Congress had to... And it basically always passed. And so I think it did lead to this expectation, you know, particularly from leaders in Congress that, like, these things will get fixed. We'll deal with them. We don't have to have sort of long-term plans for them necessarily. But again, I just think CHIP is a cautionary tale. And I wonder if we'll see some of these other things that everyone assumes just will get renewed are going to start hitting the rocks in this way. Well, let's talk about the tax bill for a minute, because that's what I was starting to say is the other thing that's going on. You've now got this spending deal that CHIP and other things are supposed to get in by the end of the year. At the same time, they, they seem to have bought these 10 days to see if they can come to some agreement on this tax bill, which, as we have discussed here before, has an awful lot of health-related things in it. So I guess the, the big question at the moment um, is Susan Collins, the, the main Republican who voted kind of unexpectedly, although maybe not unexpectedly, she is a Republican for the tax bill, saying she wanted certain health, other health-related things to happen and it doesn't look like they're going to happen, does it? Well, it's an open question. So I, I wrote a piece this week asking, you know, if she got rolled in, in give, giving her vote for the tax bill on these what she called ironclad promises that are looking a little less ironclad these days. Um, but she she's actually demanding three things. She's demanding the uh, CSR payments restored. She's demanding reinsurance money. And she's demanding the waiver of the PAYGO cuts to Medicare, which would be $25 billion every year. For 10 years. For mm-hmm. 10 years. And this is this is actually the, the, the last one is an automatic thing because they're adding a trillion dollars to the deficit in the tax bill. So I was running around the house asking, what is the likelihood any of these will happen? And it sounds like at least the PAYGO waiver is probably going to happen. Even the most conservative people who would love to got Medicare say there's going to be a waiver. Um, Although they need Democratic votes for that. I mean, sure, but it, they're it would be pretty hard. confident they're going to get them. <laughs> it would be hard to imagine Democrats sort of, you know, essentially voting for $25 billion in Medicare cuts, but... It's they would I, I, the you would think they cuts, could extract something. I think it's important that. to remember. I did a story about this, so I'm like acutely aware of the very long <laughs> list of programs that are subject to this, these crazy automatic cuts. So Medicare is important because it's the biggest and most popular program, and it's the most dollars. But Medicare is actually limited to a four percent cut. The magnitude of the deficit increase that is estimated from this tax bill is large enough that every other program that is eligible for these PAYGO cuts actually goes to zero dollars. Yeah, which is so important. And there are healthcare uh, programs in that list, including the Public Health and Prevention Fund, the um, Risk Adjustment Fund inside of Obamacare. And there's lots of other stuff, too, the... um, there are some block grants that go for social services provision in the states, some of which pay for you know uh, Meals on Wheels for the elderly, for foster care, for other kinds of health and human services programs. And there's a million other things. The entire farm aid budget would be eliminated. So there's... There is, I think, good reason to think that there are a lot of members of Congress that would want to prevent all mandatory spending programs from going to zero dollars. <laughs> yes. But they still like they have to do it. They have to put it on the floor and they have to vote for it. And, you know, I think Susan Collins... Uh, has reason to be confident on that one, but we have to see. Yes. Mark Meadows, the leader of the Freedom Caucus, uh, told me that um, allowing PAYGO to happen would be 
a sledgehammer when he thinks a scalpel would would uh, do better. And he even said, uh, "Everyone's favorite budgetary <laughs> metaphor." Exactly. He, you know, he was saying this this wax across the board at all of these programs, um, but it doesn't touch a lot of programs he would like to cut. That's like, right, like Medicaid. Exactly. And so he says we can cut, but let's let's have the cuts be what we decide, not just an automatic across the board slash. And, and by the way, like the law was actually written. For exactly that reason, it was sort of supposed to be a terrible and unpleasant and undesirable way to cut uh, spending to create an incentive for legislators to not increase the deficit so much. So, you know, it's supposed to be this horrible thing. And in theory, the people who wrote it wanted Congress to not increase the deficit with legislation. What's happened as a, as a practical matter ever since it's been in law is that every time Congress wants to increase the deficit a lot, they just tuck a little provision in the bill where they say, don't count this towards the sc- scorecard for this paygo cut. And the reason why they're having difficulty on the tax bill is because that kind of language is not allowed in a reconciliation bill. I think if it was allowed, they would have tucked it in. No one really wants to have this fight. But the reason why we can't be sure of what's going to happen is because it will have to be a freestanding piece of legislation. And people may vote differently if they're just voting on that. Right. But although I do think that the 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 reason um, Susan Collins is sort of being attacked um, by constituents right now is that the Alexander um, Murray, the bipartisan health deal that would ref- that would the restore cost sharing reductions, reductions um, really seems to be up in the air. And I know that Paul Ryan talked about being open to it, but it, he also left the door open to it starting a conversation, which raises questions of what else would Republicans try to saddle on that that Democrats would would obviously hate. So I think that's really why she's getting so attacked is is she was saying this will happen. And now it it looks like it may not happen. If it does happen, it may be saddled with other stuff. Um, It's also not clear in the Senate. You know, she does have a pretty ironclad promise from Mitch McConnell to bring it up. But at least originally... We should point in the Senate where it already, in theory, had 60 votes. Well, it did. But I don't know in the circumstance where it's going to help make Susan Collins more comfortable voting for a tax reform bill that Democrats don't like and that does away with the individual mandate. I don't really know that there are necessarily any Democratic votes for that bill in this context, even though, of course, you know, a month ago, if we were talking about that package, we would have expected all the Democrats to vote for it. Right. And one really interesting twist is um, there was also some concern that should it pass, would it actually cause some people to to pay more? Because that's right, it might r- make things worse. Right, right. So um, you know, you've got that element kind of at play too. I don't know how much that's on the radar screen, but I, I really do think that there's some risk that Democrats would would kind of bail from this if it's part of the individual mandate. I, mean, I, I think, think if that's you're a legitimate. Democrat and you don't want the tax bill to go, you want to give Susan Collins every reason to vote against it. It really seems yeah. unlikely to me that there would be many Democrats voting for. Uh, the the sta- stabilization bill at this time, right? But on on the other side, I think that this desire to get the tax bill done is so strong on the Republican side that a lot of people who would be opposed to um, these healthcare programs that they not very long ago called a bailout and corporate welfare to be suddenly okay with them in the interest of getting the bigger tax bill across the finish line. Although I saw somebody tweeted last night, forgive me, I now forget who, that that Mark Walker, um, the head of the Republican mm-hmm. Study Committee, was promised that the cost-sharing stuff would not go in the in the spending bill to come. Right. I a saw, lot of yeah. promises yeah. going yeah. around. <laughs> I mean, right now... The Senate Republicans do not need Susan Collins' vote. That's right. Her leverage is not really So her leverage is, you know, she was able to extract a lot of promises. I think it was helpful for them to pass the bill through the Senate with a vote to spare. 
there's going to be a special election in Alabama next week, so we do not know who will have that open Alabama Senate seat right now. Do we know that Roy Moore would vote for it? We don't know. I mean, we don't. I mean, know even if he it. wins, we, we don't, don't know. know. We don't know who would get it, and we don't know how uh, Roy Moore would vote. We assume that Doug Jones, the Democrat, who would vote with the uh, you know, it's a very close election, but he probably would vote against the bill. Uh, but as if 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 someone in that seat is willing to vote the way Luther Strange, the current Alabama senator, is willing to vote, Susan Collins can peel away, and Mike Pence can break a tie, and the tax reform bill can become law. So, right. I mean, Susan Collins' leverage is actually kind of interesting. I mean, it's very contingent on a lot of other things happening. Yeah, which <laughs> they just they just would not be able to lose any single other person if if she went. That's right. They are, they're going to have to keep, in other words, they're going to have to keep Flake happy and, and, uh, and McCain, who, you know, although they are there. I'm impressed. I think this is because of McCain that we're having an actual conference that they've appointed conferees in both houses. I'm trying to remember the last time I, you know, people paid attention to this. I, I, I tweeted earlier this week, I'm surprised at how many people who cover Capitol Hill have never covered a full-fledged conference before, which Granted, it isn't how this is going to be done. They're not going to sit down in a room like they used to and talk about things. But at least there is a conference going on. But it is interesting. It will increase the leverage of other senators. And so if there are others who have deal breaker changes that they want in the package that they think that they can get, like you may see more people raising their hands and saying, please tweak this or that. And then we'll have to see what the conservatives in the House do. All right. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about open enrollment because we're almost down to the end in the 39healthcare.gov states. The last day to enroll for 2018 coverage is next Friday, December 15th. And while enrollment started off really briskly, it has slowed down. And now it looks like we won't actually hit last year's enrollment, right? Right. Yeah. Right. I think it's expected to be below. Although, really, it would have had to have been so gangbusters because throughout the entire process, because of the shortened enrollment period, that I don't think it's really any surprise that it's going to be below. So there's, there's, I guess, two big chunks of people that are still coming. I always think it's really hard to evaluate what's happening with enrollment in the middle because it's just kind of always sort of sluggish in the middle. But in order to approach last year's number, there's People who sign up at the last minute, that's happened every year. We don't know if that chunk of last minute people is going to be bigger or smaller this time now that there's a shorter window for enrollment. Maybe everyone uh, who normally enrolled in the last month will come in in the last week and it'll be this huge increase and we'll all be surprised. Maybe people won't know about the deadline. It'll be a smaller number. And then there's also or this... maybe, maybe people think that Congress has already repealed the individual <laughs> mandate, which they haven't. It's in the tax bill. It's not done yet. Uh, and, and it doesn't apply. Even if they do, it doesn't apply till 2019. And then the other big chunk of people are people who are in Obamacare plans right now and haven't gone back to healthcare.gov to shop around and switch their plan. Those people um, are automatically either renewed in their existing plan if that exists or they're shifted automatically shifted into the, a similar plan, a plan that CMS thinks is reasonably similar to what they had before. And that's like generally a pretty junk, big chunk of people, between one and two million people. You know, I've said this so many times. My advice is if you are one of those people, it behooves you. Go to healthcare.gov. The plan you're in right now is almost certainly not the best deal for next year. It is worth looking at what else is there. The prices are really weird. You might be able to get a better plan for cheaper. But if you miss the deadline, if you don't do it, there are these people who are going to be renewed. So, it looks- And I, I think what, what a really important thing to say about that is that the, the auto re-enrollment has always been in the middle of December, but this is the first time that it will be after the end of open enrollment. So in right. years past, you would get auto re-enrolled into a plan and you could decide in January if you wanted that plan or if you wanted to change. Now, if you get auto re-enrolled into the wrong plan, too bad. You're stuck with it. 
So I mean that if you have if you're on the exchange uh, and you're 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 buying through uh, the exchange, you really do need to get on and and pick a plan yourself rather than rely on the government to pick one for you because it's not it's it's in all likelihood the plan that's comparable to what you're on now may well be more expensive than you think. But the former Obama administration officials are really concerned that that kind of last minute sign up phenomenon that we've seen in past years actually may be relatively anemic this year. Obviously, it's an empirical question. We don't know the answer. But generally, there was a big advertising push near the deadlines that has occurred in past years to remind people like, hey, like deadlines coming up. If you want insurance, now is the time. And there's just much less of that. There are these outside groups that are trying to do some advertising, but they have very limited budgets relative to what the government used to spend. And there are some celebrities who are doing these kinds of like freelance fun projects. There was like a Jeff Tweedy video that came out this week. The Stars of the West Wing did a video. Uh, but I think, you know, that is kind of small and relies on, on social media. Um, and, you know, the administration officials used to also use their social media platforms, their public appearances and other uh, opportunities to try to encourage enrollment. And we've seen basically none of that. There was a good story uh, in the Daily Beast this week about just how little uh, social media promotion and, and, and public speaking there has been by CMS officials trying yes, to encourage somebody to noted that, that Seema Verma, the, the head who, who runs Medicare and the Affordable Care Act, has been talking about the Medicare open enrollment, which, by the way, just ended, um, but had not sent a single tweet about the Affordable Care Act open enrollment until yesterday, <laughs> I think after it was pointed after out. After some negative yeah. press. Yeah. Although, I also don't know when we'll actually have the figures um, out of the new administration in terms of when uh, how open enrollment went. Um, I haven't gotten any information yet on when that will be released. So that will be really important to watch and keep an the, eye on. The Daily Beast article uh, included a detail that was really memorable, which is that um, HHS had put out several tweets about how to cook your Thanksgiving dinner, including one about the correct temperature at which your ham should be heated, but no, no uh, tweets about open enrollment for Obamacare. Yep. Although that's really not surprising considering the stance that they've taken since they they came in. Um, It'll be really interesting to me to see if any of that changes should Alex Azar be confirmed this month. Yeah, which we're also waiting for. Although in his confirmation hearing, uh, he he did defend the cuts to outreach and didn't say he believes otherwise. So I'm not confident that that insurers should be doing it. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, so there were some news out of Washington this week. Um, we got a couple of major healthcare mergers. Um, first, CVS and Aetna. Uh, then there's a big hospital merger around Chicago. It would make them the the 10th largest hospital chain. I have no and there's idea. United Devita. Oh, that's right. right. That's right. Yes, I forgot. And you, yes, United Healthcare buying the physician practices of Devita, which I didn't even know they had them. Devita, you know, longtime um, kidney care company, um, but had bought up apparently these these doctor practices, and now United is buying them. I have no idea what the health industry is trying to do by all of this. Does anybody else have have some idea? Particularly the CVS Aetna one just leaves me sort of scratching my head. Well, I did not specifically cover this, but I had a long conversation yesterday with our insurer, insurance reporter who did. And it was really interesting. Like She was saying that basically the CVS Aetna merger is their, their as she described it, they're trying to become like the REI of healthcare, where you, you kind they're of... have climbing walls? If, well, no, <laughs> no, not quite that. But you can go in and kind of get everything taken care of there. Um, you know, you, whether it be it's beyond just like their minute clinics that they have now that they really want to expand to all kinds of different healthcare, move some of it into the homes. But the thing is that they don't have the doctors like United. So how well it will really work. The other thing is that well, they're not getting them from CVS right, either. They're just right. getting a bunch of nurse practitioners. Right. Which I'm not. I love nurse practitioners. It's great, but it's not. Yeah, and the other thing too is it, CVS is not. It, 
as one one person she tried to put it, you know, my CVS has really run down. I mean, they really have to kind of up the ante in terms of their presentation, I think, to try and kick this off. But it, you're right. It's really fascinating. Um, you know, her point was that she thinks United is much better positioned because they will have the doctors. Um, but you're right. I don't the, know. The PBM. Yes. yes. Part of that's I mean, huge for, for the CVS. I mean, it's, all of these moves seem like efforts by insurance companies to become <clears throat> sort of to have like more vertical integration mm-hmm. to, you know, ha- have their fingers in more parts of care delivery. And, and financing. So, you know, historically, insurance companies manage their own pharmaceutical benefits. And then more recently, there have been these PBM pharmaceutical benefit managers. They're like these middlemen companies that deal with prescription drug benefits, and they've been sort of insurers have been subcontracting to them. Right. And that's but I think CVS there's, I think a there's a money, desire yeah. to bring them in house. And uh, United actually already has this, they have their own PBM. And I, I wonder if uh, Aetna really is, is looking to. They want, that the, model. they want the PBM they want business. The PBM. More yeah, they may than... not want the retail pharmacy right. business or the right. retail minute clinic business as much as they want the PBM business because they think maybe there's benefits to having that having their own. I think that's exactly right. I yes. think that's such an irony because as you point out, they used to do this themselves and then the <laughs> PBMs grew up. Although I have to say, I you know, having covered all of this in the nineties, which was the age of vertical integration in healthcare, it seemed like such a good idea that everybody was gonna, you know, you would have these they would own the not so much the insurers, but the hospitals and the doctors and all. All the ancillary services were going to be under one umbrella, if not under one roof. And what happened is that everybody's incentives were off and they all fell apart. Well, I also think, you know, companies and, and, and corporate management, they have certain skills that they're really good at. They have certain core competencies. And in general, the kind of people who run insurance companies, you know, those are largely, you know, financial companies. They may not be the best ones to run doctors and hospitals and direct provision of healthcare. Now, it doesn't mean that some of them can't. I think, you know, Kaiser is a great example of a company that does both well. And, you know, we will see whether uh, these mergers result in success or not. But I think it's not a given that kind of squishing care delivery and care financing into one package is going to be a good business. Right. Well, as you point out that, I mean, that is the origin of HMOs. Um, and and there are still, although I think Kaiser Permanente is, is kind of sitting out there almost by itself anymore with the, with the really huge, you know, staff model HMOs. But it's not I also wonder if mergers sort of drive more mergers that, you know, yeah. if you're if you're like the insurance, the big insurance company left and you like are kind of hanging out there by yourself, like maybe you're scared. And especially there really aren't very many PBMs. So United has one. CVS Caremark is one of the biggest. And then there's Express Scripts. And mm-hmm. not everyone wants to be Express Scripts customer. And not everyone necessarily wants to do business with their competition. So, uh, you know, like I do I do wonder if you're one of the last insurers standing without a PBM, if you start to feel a little bit nervous. Yeah. I think that that is a fair point. All right. Well, before we get to our extra credit, I want to talk a little bit. We got health, or the, our annual health spending numbers, which conveniently always come out in December for the prior year. So these, this is December of 2017. These are 2016's health spending numbers. Um, what did we learn? I think this is like a huge story. It sounds really boring. I'm going to make a pitch for why I think it's a really interesting story. Go. So forever, the conventional wisdom is that healthcare is just like this hungry, hungry hippo. It, uh, you know, gobbles up more and more of our GDP every year. Its inflation is out of control and it's going to, you know, destroy the federal budget, destroy people's uh, personal budgets. And what we've actually seen over the last decade is that for reasons that are not totally clear, the rate of growth of healthcare has slowed down a lot. And in, in many years, it started to look a lot more like the growth in the overall economy. Which is just shocking. And growth it's, in wages. Yeah. It's, it's, still, it's still a little bit higher, but uh, you know, it's been much slower the last few years. It's been and, sort of low single digits. 
And then Obamacare uh, implementation came along, and all of these new people who'd never had health insurance before got health insurance. And as you would expect, there was kind of this spike again where, you know, all these people who never had health insurance, suddenly they had Medicaid, they were going to the doctor, they were doing their things, the Medicaid managed care companies were making money, and sort of more dollars were going into the system. And a lot of people looked at that sort of naively, I think, and said, oh, it's taken off. Obamacare is making it take off again. And we're going to have this acceleration in health spending. We're going to have a budget crisis. We're going to have, a, you know, an economic crisis. And there were sort of two years of that as more, you know, as more states expanded Medicaid, as more people signed up for Obamacare plans. And now we're looking at 2016, and it's starting to look a lot more like the years when things had slowed down. It's starting to look more like a rate that feels sustainable for our economy. And for a while, people said, oh, the reason why this happened was because of the Great Recession. That is a temporary right. phenomenon that, you know, there's a lag, that health spending kind of slows down after a recession for various reasons. And then every other time that that's happened in the past, it kind of picked up again. I think now we really have to contend with the possibility that something structural has changed, that there is some kind of like permanent change in the way our healthcare system works, where it doesn't just grow and grow and grow in this way that we've come to expect. And that's a really good news story that I think often gets buried in the kind of daily drumbeat of news about how unaffordable healthcare is, about what a budget crisis we have in Medicaid and Medicare, and about, you know, there's been a lot of coverage in the last few years about how prescription drug spending and prices are just kind of out of control and they're bankrupting people and they're horrible. One of the tidbits in this CMS report was that there was a huge spike in prescription drug spending that was related to the release of these very expensive and very effective new drugs for hepatitis C. But the the rate of growth for prescription drug spending actually has come way back down. So maybe, we don't know, but maybe we're kind of in a new normal that's a little bit more manageable. I think we still got to push it down probably more for it to be sustainable over the long run, but it doesn't look like we're returning to this really bad pattern that we saw, you know, for decades in health spending. I think we may be getting to a tipping point where people and company, I mean, people just can't afford it. I mean, it's just, it is now, you can't continue to raise prices to the point where nobody can afford to pay it. I actually do agree with Margot. When I saw these, I was I was quite struck by the slowdown, by the deceleration in overall health spending growth. But what really struck me was I covered this back when, you know, the the ACA spike in healthcare spending happened, and I remember talking to so many of the Obama administration officials who were really coming under fire, and they were saying, "Look, this really is because of expansion, and there's a lot of things in the ACA that are going to help rein in the spending." And the critics I talked with said, "No, that's not going to happen. We're on an upward trajectory. And you look at this and it really bears out, look, we have gone, we have seen spending um, decelerate to a level that is much more manageable once we had this expansion coverage kick in. And so I totally agree with Margo. I thought that was absolutely fascinating as well as the prescription drug um, price uh, deceleration, um, because those were the exact points that were being argued and were being talked about just a year or two ago. Um, so I, I actually agree that there that that I don't think that this this numbers or that was actually happening with spending has has shifted over into the public dialogue or the political discourse yet about many of these issues. And there's one really important bit of bad news in this data, which is that the amount that people are being asked to spend out of their own pocket for health care did increase, and it increased more than the overall rate of spending. So that is bad for individuals. If you have a higher deductible, if you have fewer things that you need that are covered, that hits your personal budget. And you know that's what matters to people, to Americans and to voters. So I don't want to make it seem like it's all good news, but the fact that the whole system is gobbling up less dollars, that's good news. They're still gobbling up more dollars. They're just gobbling up more dollars less fast. 
Yeah. Yeah. So right. I think there's like right. a, someone, someone <laughs> the uh, had this great uh, term and I can't remember who it was, but they called it sloth. <laughs> slow <laughs> growth. It's still growing, but it's growing more slowly. I think we're still in a kind of sloth era. I like yeah. the hungry hippo one. Yes. <laughs> that's visual. That's perfect. I like the hungry hippo too. <laughs> All right. Well, we, we, we will learn more about bending the curve. I remember when that started too. We just need to bend the curve and create sloth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're going to wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. I'm going to start this week, and I'm actually going to pitch my own story because I want you guys to pitch in, too. Uh, The story was published on the Vice Health News site, Tonic. It's called Why Do People Hate Obamacare Anyway? Um, This was actually a story that that they asked me to write, but it was interesting, an interesting thought process. So the list that I came up with includes partisanship, which I think everybody agrees is the main reason, but also misunderstanding or ignorance of what the law does, deliberate misinformation supplied by opponents, and the fact that some people really are worse off than they had been before the law. What did I miss? How is partisanship and intentional misinformation different? Aren't those connected? They are. Um, but, but I mean, there's also this sort of tribal thing that everybody's talking about, which is that if you're a Republican, you don't like it because it's called Obamacare. And if you're a Democrat, you do like it because it's called Obamacare. There's, there's like a, I mean, you actually covered this in your piece, but there's a degree to which I think that Obamacare just became sort of associated with the whole healthcare system. And as we know, the healthcare system prior to Obamacare and now is like full of horrible things. It doesn't work very well. It's expensive. It's confusing. It's unfair. And I think a lot of Americans, you know, when they go to the doctor and something bad happens to them, they think, oh, Obamacare, you know, is ruining things. Yeah, so that you broke it, you bought it syndrome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's actually quite powerful that Obamacare is the last big important major thing that was supposed to, re- you know, was sold as reforming the whole healthcare system. So now whenever the healthcare system doesn't serve people, they kind of tend to blame the law. I think that's happened a lot this year, particularly with the lack of choice of insurers in, in rural counties, which was a huge problem before the Affordable Care Act, but has been since blamed on the Affordable Care Act. Yes, that's the idea that everything is blamed although on the, the Affordable the Care Act. Although the public support for the Affordable Care Act has definitely grown, although I think kind of it's notched down a little bit now. So that's a really interesting phenomenon, too. There's been a shift to some extent in the there public. There has, but it's it's still, I mean, when you look at it fundamentally, it's still pretty 50-50. It's just that the... Well, the, it was the sort of 50, 40 before, right? Yeah. Right. It's, like, right. it's now like sort of 52 support and 48 oppose, whereas for a long time it was 52 oppose and 48 support. It's It's still... And most of the, as I understand it from talking to folks at Kaiser Family Foundation who do this polling, have done this polling every month for the whole life of the law, a lot of the increase in support is actually coming from the left and not the right, which I think is interesting. There are a lot of Democrats who basically felt like Obamacare didn't go far enough. And so mm-hmm. when they you, when you polled them, they said that they didn't approve of the law. And then when it came under attack and the alternative was something further to the right, suddenly they wanted to protect it. Yep, I think so. All right. Do you want to say something or we should go let Alice, you, what's your what's your extra credit? Well, the wildest healthcare story I heard this week <laughs> broke last night and it was about a Republican member of Congress asking his female staffers to be surrogates, not in the political spokesperson sense of the word, but in the literally carrying his child in their uterus sense of the word. And uh, that Congress member, uh, Representative Trent Franks from Arizona, one of the most conservative members of Congress. um, And one of the leading voices in the anti-abortion debate. Absolutely. Just, um, yeah, strongest anti-abortion voice in Congress uh, has 
tried to um, done a lot um, on that issue, in, including um, in particular targeting uh, the District of Columbia's um, uh, abortion funding right to use its own uh, tax dollars um, to fund abortions. So uh, he is resigning, um, and. This is just uh, a form of inappropriate workplace behavior that had not even occurred to me. And here we are. So 2017 never, never fails to surprise. That's right. It's December and there's still stuff that can shock us. Yes. Good choice. Stephanie. Um, mine is actually something that uh, is uh, from a little bit older. It was uh, ran in the New York Times, and it is a – I don't know what you would call it. It's, it's called Obamacare Penalty. Millions pay the Obamacare penalty instead of buying insurance. Who it's are they? It's an infographic. It's an infographic. And, but, you know, it's got chock full of information that I think that they obviously had to also do reporting on because um, I had talked with the IRS yesterday, and it was it – was, clear that there was some information here that really they have, had to dig into. I have a little into. bit of an inside scoop on that. Oh, right. do I can you? verify okay. that quite a lot of reporting happened. Right. But it it's really lays out very clearly um, kind of who actually pays the penalty, why people aren't why people don't pay the penalty. Um, it really, I think, provides some good information for the dialogue that's now going on in the Hill about individual mandate repeal. And that's what you want journalism to do. You want it to be something that can be that can be used as uh, to, to make decisions. And this, there was information in here that I think Congress people didn't know about. And I've heard it referred to from many people I talk with. It's really worth reading. Good. Margo. So I wanted to recommend a story from our uh, What the Health colleague, uh, Sarah Cliff, who is doing a year-long project looking at this particular fee that people get when they go to the emergency room. It's called a facility fee. So when you go to the emergency room, you know, you... Are pay, you pay for the particular services you get, and then you basically pay a flat fee that's just for using the emergency room. And it turns out that those fees are all over the place, like different, uh, you know, different emergency rooms charge different fees. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's really hard for consumers to know what they're going to be in advance. And so she's asked, she's done a lot of crowdsourcing, just kind of like asking people to share their bills with her and, and so that she can get some sense. But she also, she did a story this week where she went to an organization called the Healthcare Cost Institute. And they basically pool all the insurance claims from three of the largest uh, private, insurers. private insurers in the country. And she just looked at like, what are the trends in these particular fees? And what she found, I thought was actually fairly shocking. She found that over the last few years, the amount that has been paid by these private insurers just for these kind of flat fees for using the emergency room has grown by 89%. It's basically doubled over, I think, about five years. And that the average code, I'll explain what that is in a second, uh, associated with the care has also been on a pretty sharp increase. So a code is a way for the emergency room to say how sick you were and how complicated your care was. So if you come in and, uh, you know, they ask you a couple questions and, you know, give you a Band-Aid, that's supposed to be like low complexity. If you come in and, you know, you've had major trauma and you have to have like a CAT scan and a million tests and a lot of people have to look you over, that's high complexity. And the idea is that the emergency room is supposed to be compensated for the amount of work that they were doing on you. Uh, but, you know, the data that she had showed some evidence that emergency rooms are systematically choosing these higher codes. It's called upcoding. Now, we don't know, obviously. I think there are some unanswered questions in this data that I'm sure that Sarah will continue to report and maybe others will, too. We don't know. It's possible that maybe more healthy people are not going to the emergency room, right? It could be a good news story that actually what's happening is that the kinds of people who are using the emergency room are people who really have emergencies, and that's why we're seeing this increase in coding. But that doesn't totally explain why these fees have gone up. And I do think that 
uh, they're very untransparent. And then she's very smart to be focusing on them for a year. I can't wait to see what she writes next. (laughs) Yeah, I can't either. All right. Well, that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us, too. If you have comments, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Alice Olstein. At Steph Farmer One. At Sanger Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.